0: Welcome to the Daily Standard podcast. It's July 6th, 2018. Joining me, Andrew Egger of the Weekly Standard and the editor-in-chief of the Weekly Standard, Stephen Hayes. Uh, Thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. We have a lot to talk about today. Let's start off with uh, Scott Pruitt. Uh, Finally, uh, the president pulled the plug. Why did it take so long, Stephen Hayes?
1: I think we saw why it took so long in Scott Pruitt's letter of resignation, right? Uh, That was a classic. He he was really a uh, a Donald Trump bootlicker from the beginning and continued to be until the very last day, even in his final letter, in his departure letter, uh, praising the president, talking about what an honor it was to serve the president on and on and on. By all accounts, Pruitt had forged a, a good personal relationship with Donald Trump. He defended him vigorously uh, in public and uh, was attentive to the president's needs in private. He won the president. A lot of praise from the center-right because of the regulatory rollback that he under, undertook. And, of course, we know that Donald Trump cares quite a bit about what kinds of feedback he gets, particularly uh, on cable, t- cable TV. Mm-hmm. So for all those reasons, I think Scott Pruitt was able to kind of defy the odds despite you know, deep and serious and substantive reporting on his uh, many scandals uh, and, and stick around.
0: The uh, the Weekly Standard was one of the earlier conservative publications to call for his uh, his ouster. What was the tipping point for you? Well, I think
1: at that point, I mean, what was interesting, as, as we talked about it, our, our editorial team talked about it, we're, we're not one. We're not a publication that that often, you know, harumps and, and says so-and-so must go, uh, you know, when you're talking about cabinet officials and whatnot. Um, but we thought at, at that point, this was in, I believe, early May, the cumulative weight of the evidence against Scott Pruitt and his inability to, to defend himself or otherwise explain um, all of these uh, various allegations made it really impossible for him to continue to do his job. And we agree with a, a fair amount of what he was trying to do on policy. Look, there, w- there was also, you remember that uh, that interview uh, that he had with Ed Henry uh, mm-hmm. that really hasn't gotten as much attention. And that was in, in early April, if I'm not I mistaken. I
0: think that was a turning point, though.
1: Well, it ought to have been. Yeah. Uh, it, was, it was, I think, one of several things that we considered when we wrote our editorial. If you look at the, the, the debate, I mean, Scott Pruitt basically just lies to Ed Henry. It's he gets caught in a lie. And that, that's the kind of thing that used to matter. I know I sound, <laughs> I know I sound like Pollyanna, but, but that used to matter. It still matters uh, certainly to me and I think to, to those of us at the magazine.
0: You you know the, the the puzzle, and I've asked this question before. The puzzle that I have is that Scott Pruitt is 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 not a newbie. He's an elected official. He's been around a lot. You know what what was it? Arrogance? Was it naivete? What what accounts for the almost recklessness with with which he 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 attacked uh, the the ethics the ethical norms of Washington D.C. Did he did he feel entitled? Uh, was I what? Do you have any you have a, an operational theory on what the hell was going on with him?
1: I mean, I look. I think it's a combination of those two things: arrogance and naivete. Arrogance that that he would, you know, feel like he could send staffers off to get lotion from the Ritz-Carlton and then do all these absurd things. Arrogance uh, that he thought he could get away with um, what he was uh, what he was doing, trying to to get lucrative either jobs or or Chick Fil A franchises or what have you for his wife and naivete about the way washington works i mean look you know Mm. we we as an institution we as a magazine have been very critical about the way washington works about the the permanent bureaucracy about the, the fact that we have so many unelected people in washington really determining and driving the growth of government the expansion of government um contrary to the best interests of the country that doesn't mean however that uh This kind of stuff is permissible, that this is just what happens and and it's okay uh, when you get to Washington. And Scott Pruitt apparently seemed to believe that it was, uh, seemed to think that this is how everything works. And it's just not the case. And I think he's, Mm. he's learned that the hard way.
0: The uh, we we apparently now have a full blown trade war. And I want to talk about uh, that in in just a couple of minutes. And of course, all of the speculation about the the Supreme Court, uh, which the which the president is, you know, either is going to announce on Monday or early. Who knows? Uh, the uh, the Weekly Standard is a piece up by Fred Barnes, who has fantastic sources, saying three reasons Trump is likely to pick Brett Kavanaugh. And I want to talk about that in a moment. But Andrew Egger, you had a piece yesterday that I thought was really intriguing, uh, focusing on Susan Collins and how hard it is to be a centrist in the United States Senate right now when you have a polarizing issue like the future of the Supreme Court.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what what we see here, you know, it, Susan Collins is is a person who has always made her bones in the Senate by trying to find sort of some, some middle ground to stand on. And oftentimes that's been helpful. She's been sort of a moderating influence on, on policy. You know, the, the GOP has needed her vote for a number of different things, especially, you know, since President Trump was elected. Uh, and there's been this very, very slim majority. Uh, but but it's also led her to get into some sort of uh, tortuous uh, rhetorical places. And what we, we've sort of seen that just this past week as she tried to lay out the, the the characteristics she'd like to see in a, in a nominee from President Trump um, one thing that that she has seemed to put her foot down on is basically saying uh, I don't want a nominee who shows antipathy toward or shows hostility toward rather Roe v Wade uh, Open you want yeah right though. right you want exactly exactly she, she, she seems to be indicating that you want a judge who uh, who respects judicial precedent but at the same time you know she isn't saying she needs a potential judge uh, to actually come out and Say that they would support uh, Roe v. Wade if it ever came up again uh, at the at the judicial level, um, and 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 it sort of just highlights the fact that clearly the Supreme Court is now an issue where uh, not only in terms of policy is it is it an either or proposition. It's not just you have to nominate a conservative or you have to nominate uh, someone who will fight for progressive policy, but it's it's become a thing where both sides are are so um, distinct, it, even in their their their. Uh, uh, their reads on what the court is supposed to do, the standards by which a moderate justice would be determined, uh, that, that there really is no position for, for Susan Collins to stand on there. So in order in order for her and other uh, sort of aspiring centrists to try to find that spot in the middle, it ends up being sort of a misleading and dissembling more than anything else. Yeah.
0: You, you know, it is, we, we talk about the alternative realities that we have. There's also alternative jurisprudence, just completely different understandings of the role of the court in the nature of the court and judicial philosophy so let's talk about uh, fred barnes piece uh chris uh i mean, uh, I mean let's. because steve what, what, I, this is know, what it happens it's, it's when you go to
1: msnbc you know? Know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah i don't think i'm going to be back on that show for a while uh steve let's talk about fred barnes piece yeah it's going to be brutal On trust me it is going to be brutal you know to be a trump skeptical uh conservative who thinks that the uh, the nominee is a good nominee? Boy, that's good. That's that's going to be the loneliest place on the planet Earth. Trust me. All right, Fred Barnes thinks uh, that it's likely to be Brett Kavanaugh. He's not making a prediction, but he says there are a lot of straws in the wind. Give me your sense, uh, Stephen Hayes, about the state of play now uh, between now and Monday. Well,
1: Fred has very good sources. Um, you know, I, I would argue that Fred wrote the definitive piece on how Neil Gorsuch got picked. Mm-hmm. Um, this was back just a couple weeks after. Um, the Gorsuch uh, I think it was after the Gorsuch was confirmed But but Fred knows this And he knows it very well And he's been covering nominations for a long time So if Fred Barnes writes that Brett Kavanaugh is ascending uh, I think you need to take that seriously Now having said that Donald Trump is famously mercurial about everything, and in particular about personnel issues. Um, You know, he could see something on Fox and Friends over the weekend that casts a negative light on on Brett Kavanaugh, and he could decide that that's it. He can't possibly defend. He's a Bush Bush guy. Yeah. Um, Look, I think you know, as a conservative, you have to be happy if if the reports that we're getting about the three finalists are are. Accurate that it's Kethridge, Barrett, and Kavanaugh, you have to be, uh, I think, encouraged that Donald Trump is sticking to his list, that he's, um, you know, whether he's taking this seriously or making the decisions for the right reasons, that he's likely to end up, end up with a very good uh, selection on the court uh, if the person is in fact confirmed. And it's one of the things that people, conservatives who were either enthusiastic about Donald Trump going into the 2016 election or those who weren't enthusiastic but thought that they had to vote for him because of the Supreme Court, they can point to this and say, look, he is reshaping the court. Whatever you Trump skeptics might have thought, he is reshaping the court
0: with highly qualified nominees. I mean, these are the the kind of nominees that we wouldn't have thought twice about if it was President Rubio or Cruz or President Bush or President Walker or anyone else. I mean, this is any conservatives short list that we're looking at here.
1: No, it absolutely is. And the fact that the Federalist Society and the Heritage Foundation played a role in crafting the list, I mean, I think crafted the list uh, for for Trump, uh, is one of the reasons that he's able to, to call on these potential nominees. And, and uh, you know, they, they played the game. They said early, we're going to try to influence the way this goes. We're going to give them a list um, and we're going to we're going to push it as hard as we can. And he I think he, he was encouraged by the attaboys that he got for picking Neil Gorsuch And I think he is sort of conditioned to want the same. And that's one of the main reasons that I think we have the three stellar finalists that we have.
0: What what do you you make of the – maybe this is just now the, the normal kabuki dance where Rand Paul raises his hand and says, I'm going to be difficult about all of this, suggesting that he might not support Kavanaugh because of his role during the Bush administration. And I think Ted Cruz has raised some questions as well. Do you see those as significant barriers, or is that just Rand Paul being Rand Paul?
1: It could be a significant barrier if Rand Paul wants to be wants to be a significant barrier, right? I mean, the margin. Does
0: he want? Does he want to be the deciding vote to 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 kill a a conservative Trump nominee?
1: I would think that the pressure on Rand Paul in that. Uh, instance, would be too great to bear unless he could point to something really problematic uh, that goes beyond sort of judicial philosophy. And I think the, the the arguments on judicial philosophy are a stretch. I mean, people who, who know Kavanaugh well, who have worked with him in the past, um, who have spent more time reading his opinions than I have, um, say he is a true conservative. He's He is as sharp as they come and would be a great Supreme Court pick. So if Rand Paul wants to have that fight with the president and with uh, the Republican Party, he can have that fight if he chooses to do so. We've seen him do this before. I mean, I mm-hmm. think, I, I forget who coined the term, but but uh, someone called it Rand standing, um, <laughs> making a, a big show of, of uh, being willing to take on the new establishment, because that's what the Trump world is now. Uh, we'll see. I, I guess I'm skeptical that he'll actually do it. But if he wanted to, he certainly could.
0: Okay, we're officially in a trade war. Andrew Egger, you have uh, you've written about this as well. The the uh, the president has famously said that uh you know trade wars are, you know, e- e- easy to win and yet we seem to have stumbled into a full-blown trade war with the Chinese specifically now retaliating against tariffs.
2: Yeah. Uh, we, we've seen this coming for a, a couple of months now is this very interesting cycle where the last time tariffs were in the news uh, was, was way back in May. And that's when we were sort of, uh, th- there was a supposed deal that was about to come through. Trump even announced that the Chinese had agreed to a big new deal. And then that immediately fizzled and went nowhere. Um, and, and even back then, you know, uh, pro-trade advisors like Larry Kudlow in the White House were still saying, um, you know, look, this is, th- th- this is still far off in the future. The fact that we've said we're going to put these tariffs tariffs into place. That's still all provisional. It still all has to do with negotiations uh, and nothing's gone into place yet. But then what happened is, you know, we had two months of, of, of crazy news and, and nobody really even thought about tariffs between then and now. And so here we are. And now it's the week that they announce these tariffs are going to happen. And here they are going into place. And so it's uh, the, the, the envelope really hasn't moved forward, at least in terms of the administration's mm-hmm. public discussion of what they want about these tariffs uh, ever since back then. And that is what's uh, now putting a lot of pressure on on uh, a lot of the different sectors that the Chinese are specifically targeting with their retaliatory tariffs because the Chinese obviously have a lot of freedom um, to sort of slap tariffs on whatever they want to, whereas uh, Trump has... Always pegged his to sort of national security and uh, you know copyright uh, and infringement and intellectual property enforcement those sorts of things. Uh, so the, the Chinese now have been really putting the hurt on uh, some particularly vulnerable sectors of uh, American commerce. Most most specifically and critically agriculture because they're they're an enormous importer. Uh, you know they they buy up uh, U.S. soybeans like they're going out of style or at least they have been up until now uh, and other products as well because they you know they have a lot of mouths to feed a lot of animals to feed over there um, and and that's been a, a real concern for for farmers for a long time. As you know, they're they are Trump supporters. They often remain, or they 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 largely remain Trump supporters today. The ones I've I've been talking to this week, uh, you know, they they say things like, "We're we're happy to sort of go to bat for the country, go to war for the country in a, in a trade scenario." They sort of trust the president's. Uh, overall policy on this but at the same time you know they obviously realize that they're getting crucified you know they' that it's it's really not sustainable in terms of what what uh even just the uncertainty leading up to now like it's uh, coin and soybean prices in the US have been at an unsustainable level in terms of keeping farmers in the black for months and before the tariffs even went into place it's been you know since since that day that Trump announced uh, that 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 there was a, a big new deal in the works uh, that was the high water mark for for coin and soybean prices Mm-hmm. And, and they've been they've essentially been cratering ever since even you know and 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 China hasn't has hadn't put any any uh Protective actions into place until today, so it's it's an issue of real concern to them, especially when they they don't see that the the administration has an exit strategy for these tariffs, has any plan for uh, you know economic relief for agriculture or anything like that. They don't know how long this is going to last, and it's it could be an extinction level event for a number of farmers in America. <laughs> extinction so it's, it's, level event.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, you know, Stephen, as you pointed out on 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 Twitter today, um, he you know you've had White House officials you know saying for months, nah, we're not going to have a trade war. There's no, there will be no trade war we're we're putting the trade war on hold well apparently not yeah well that's that's part of the lesson
1: here. And unfortunately, this was not only predictable, but predicted at the time that the president started flailing and, and making these threats. We don't you don't once you make these threats, once you make take steps to implement tariffs or threaten tariffs, you lose control of the war. You're not the only ones fighting that. And other people will step in and and uh, retaliate, even sometimes uh, preemptively retaliate based on on the rhetoric the president's used. And we're seeing some of that. We're seeing this retaliation. I mean, it was uh, Peter Navarro, the president's protectionist uh, trade advisor, who said, I don't believe any country is going to retaliate because we're the most lucrative and biggest market in the world. And there's a political story out today. Mexico imposes retaliatory Mm -hmm. tariffs on dozens of U.S. goods. Steve Mnuchin in May said, we're putting the trade war on hold. We don't get to put the trade war on hold. Uh, These things take on a life of their own. Unfortunately, That's what's happened here. And I think the way that Andrew describes the the consequences, he's exactly right. And what's sort of amazing is that a president who I think has some deep and fundamental misunderstandings about the nature of trade, the importance of Mm -hmm. of trade deficits or or lack of importance of trade deficits, he's sort of uh, racing the country down this path based on uh, a misunderstanding of how trade works and we're likely to see the country pay for it and the U.S. economy pay for it it. It is is ultimately self-defeating for the president to do it. But the advisors on his staff who are pro-trade or who were once pro-trade, we don't really know anymore because you have people like Larry Kudlow making public arguments defending tariffs. A lot of people who were once free free traders now making arguments defending tariffs. Uh, But if they are, in fact, in private, making these arguments to the president uh, about the importance of free trade, there's no indication that the president is getting it. And one final note – You know, what we're we're seeing just the beginning of this. What we are not seeing are investments that haven't been made, um, you know, supply chain disruption that is difficult to chronicle, difficult for reporters to get at. I mean, this is happening at such a deeper level. Than headlines today or yesterday or tomorrow can even convey and the, the sort of convulsions of the US economy that we are beginning to see I, I am worried will sort of take on a life of, of their own and look the president doesn't like to, to be made uh, to look foolish and I think he's going to come out of this angry and we've seen his rhetoric towards Harley Davidson. Uh, we can expect that that he is most likely backed into this corner to strike out more rather than uh, take a step back.
0: All right now, speaking of, of of relationships with the rest of the world, the president is preparing for his. His summit with Vladimir Putin, and last night in Montana, and you know who who knows where you start with that particular rally. It's 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 no it's no longer you know man bites dog that you have a wild rally. But but he did say something that was extraordinary. He says, you know, President Putin is fine. He's fine. We are all fine. We are all people. Um, going out. He's you know you know mocking John McCain. He's attacking George H W Bush. You know he's he's lashing out at at a bunch of people, but he just lavishes praise once again on Vladimir Putin. As Jim Shooto tweeted out um, in, in in reaction to the Vladimir Putin is fine, um, Vladimir Putin is annexed Crimea, invaded eastern Ukraine, murders dissidents, journalists and spies, deliberately bombs civilians in Syria, um, mounting a military buildup to weaken U.S., interfered in the election to help Trump to win shot down a commercial airliner over Europe, poisoned people, several people in UK with nerve agent, carries out daily cyber attacks on US infrastructure, driven by conviction that anything that weakens US benefits Russia. Trump has been briefed on all of this, but repeatedly ignores it. Stephen, I just, the fascination with with Putin continues to be just extraordinary and, and almost inexplicable given all of the attention and criticism he gets for it.
1: Yeah, and and as you point out, it's not just, you know, Democrats who are criticizing him. You have some Republicans, unfortunately, uh, I think, who are now uh, mimicking the president in his overtures to Vladimir Putin for reasons that remain totally inexplicable to me. I mean, Vladimir Putin is, is, you know, he is an adversary. I think we could rightly call him an enemy today. If you look at what he's doing and has been doing, look at what the Russian regime has been doing well before Mitt Romney identified them as as our main geopolitical foe in 2012, do the actions of an enemy. Uh, they're trying to uh, disrupt the United States um Sole uh, position as world superpower, they are working against U.S. interests. You know, not only in their own backyard, but in the Middle East, in the United States itself, uh, acting in ways that you would expect an enemy to act. And yet, you have Donald Trump and some Republicans uh, playing nice with Vladimir Putin. It doesn't make any sense. And what were it's those senators doing regrettable?
0: With what were what, what the Republican senators doing over in Moscow this week?
1: Well, I don't know. I mean, some of those senators no doubt called for isolating Vladimir Putin after uh, the invasion of the Crimean Peninsula. And so the isolation that they once seemed to prefer, or liked when Barack Obama was president, uh, I guess is now in, inoperative. Um, it's really unfortunate. Richard Shelby, a senator from Alabama who certainly knows better, uh, even when he was in Russia, said uh, this: both sides have... Have problems. Both sides are Both responsible sides. for the difficult difficulties in the relationship. I mean, mm. that is such an odious argument to make. Uh, it's a it's a terrible argument to make here in the United States when you're talking about somebody as malign as Vladimir Putin has been. But it's particularly uh, offensive argument to make on Russian soil. Um, I don't know. they're they're whatever they're doing, they've been a propaganda coup for the the Russian regime. They've been used in the Russian media. They've been uh, made fun of because the Russians are portraying the Russians, not surprisingly as strong in the United States uh, and the Republican party as grovelling and weak. Um, and one wishes that that were uh, less true than it apparently is.
0: I want to kind of comment on something. I, I I by the way, I like Ari Fleischer personally. Um, but, uh, he tweeted something out after the, the rally yesterday and he's, he's of course, you know, former, you know, spokesman for president Bush, but he's become a, a Trump, uh, rationalizer and defender. And, um, he's, he's commenting on one of the things that, uh, the president said last night, uh, Trump takes a strange swipe at, this is from, uh, Jeff Selany. Uh, take, takes a, a strange stripe at George, swipe at George H W Bush thousand points of light. What does that mean? I know one thing, make America great. Again, we understand putting America first. We understand thousand points of light. Never quite got that one. What the hell is that? And Ari Fleischer then tweets out, this is so uncalled for. Going after a 94-year-old former president's promotion of volunteerism. I don't mind POTUS being a fighter. I do mind him being rude. And my reaction to that was, Ari, this is just occurring to you now of all of the insults, all of the things that he's throwing out, all of the mockery, all of the invective, all of the slurs, everything. And it's like, well, I've got to draw the line here. You mocked thousand points of light. That's it. I'm drawing the line there.
2: It is amazing what people are willing to swallow with this guy. I, th- I think that sort of speaks to you know the, the problem that sort of... Uh buttoned up sort of square, polite uh, establishment types in Washington have had uh, ever since, you know, Trump uh, got on the scene at all. You know, is that is that uh, a lot of these institutions and things that, that we all like and respect and, and feel feel are necessary for safeguarding uh, not just liberty, but but, you know, uh, a, a good citizenry and, uh, you know, a healthy a democratic uh Life in our country, um, they're they're more fragile than than you might have expected prior to all of this. And and when you have a guy who who is able to come on the scene and, and sort of harness this this sort of destructive rage, uh, it's it's that that's a very difficult thing to defend from the inside. We see that in the press. We see that with guys like Ari Fleischer, where where you know we're, what we're really good at is sort of like defending bourgeois norms as long as those bourgeois norms sort of carry currency in 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 the country. You know, like we're we're good at noticing uh, when people violate those things. And sort of scolding them. And as long as people at large believe those norms ought to be upheld uh, for their own sake, uh, well, that's that's what we're good at doing. But but when, well, when where, where you pretend that you care about those norms, because, I mean, here, here you have
0: a guy who's, you know, he's, he's mocking, you know, women in the Me Too movement and John McCain. And, and, and but but Ari Fleischer it now is, is, is concerned that this president, you know, he, he can be rude. Well, he, I, as, as 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 if rudeness is a real standard that he cares about, or he only cares about it when he insults somebody that he likes. Right. Well, there there Apparently certainly is. All the other stuff is like, uh, okay, that's fighting. Yeah, there but certainly is a performative
2: aspect to to the sort of norm embracing, which I think has helped sort sort of weaken those norms in the eyes of a lot of people, which is partially how we how we got Trump in the first place.
0: Yeah. Um, I just want to uh, highlight some really, really good news. And it's uh, something that I've been writing about, I think, now for four years. Uh, and I have a piece up on, on on the standard about the decision by the Wisconsin State Supreme Court on academic freedom. And I do believe that it's a potential landmark decision. This is the case involving uh, Marquette University political science professor John McAdams, who was uh, suspended and, you know, in effect, virtually fired, thrown off campus after he wrote a blog entry that was critical of a fellow instructor's attitude towards, of all things, academic freedom. And it really became, I think, one of the premier academic freedom cases in the country, even though Marquette's a private university, they had a contract, they had uh, faculty statutes that specifically said you cannot be fired, you cannot be disciplined for exercise of free speech, you have First Amendment rights and whatnot, and yet Marquette decided to make an example of john mccain and have fought this battle that's gone on for years and years and years and today the wisconsin supreme court just delivered a complete and total smackdown of Marquette university complete vindication of of john mccain and of the principles of academic freedom at institutions that promise academic freedom and uh, i think it's going to have resonance around the the, the country and it's a, I, it's a good it's a good moment for um for the wisconsin court but i think it's a, it's an even better moment for uh you know a court standing up in favor of uh you know of of professors who are willing to rattle the cage even if it means antagonizing uh the pc police
1: yeah you know charlie you have been talking about this since, since it Forever. happened i think you and i talked about it on on your radio show uh Back in the day, um, look, this is this is good news for all the reasons you suggest, and and I, I guess I'm um, cautiously optimistic that we might be seeing a, t- a turn uh, in in these debates, these free speech on campus debates nationwide. I, I participated in the panel discussion last week uh, up on Capitol Hill uh, that featured Howard Gilman, who I believe is the chancellor at University of California, Irvine, and has written. Uh, I mean, he's he's had a ton of experience. Dealing with campus free speech issues, he's written, literally written a book about campus free speech issues, and he was much more sanguine about uh, where we're headed uh, on these issues than I am, uh, or than I had been before listening to him. Um, he thinks that that the the uh, campus free speech issues, like we've seen at, at Middlebury and at Evergreen State and elsewhere get a lot of attention because they're the exceptions rather than the rule. And that as a broader trend, um, these things are actually happening less and less frequently and they're less and less egregious. Now, having said that, there are still reasons to be uh, concerned. I mean, you look at the the safe spaces and you look at the triggering and you look at the willingness of university administrators and faculty to shield students from the kinds of Debates that we ought to be having, if anywhere, on our college campuses, um, and and it continues. So it, it's not it's way too early to declare victory, but the fact that we have a couple of these things that we can point to that that uh, have ended up coming to the right conclusion, I think, is is good news for all of us. No,
0: I I, I think that's exactly right. In fact, last week in Aspen, I heard um, I, I had not heard him before the the president of the University of Chicago who was very very forceful uh, in defense of free speech and uh, in opposition to the sort of the, the the snowflake culture and somebody in the audience asked him this question that like, well you know aren't these incidents uh, exaggerated you know is, isn't this simply a you know a kind of a a, a right wing fiction that in fact there is this intolerance and he didn't hesitate he said no this is a really serious problem um this, this is an epidemic of intolerance on campuses and we need to take a strong position and you know, coming from somebody in his position, it was it was really bracing and and reassuring to hear that that first of all, he was not minimizing the you know how widespread the problem was, um but also uh, say, saying that that his institution was absolutely committed to free expression and and to articulating it. And I also think that that there does appear to be a you know outside of you know just the the extreme elements of the academy, which are always going to be there. I am sensing a, a broadening consensus for the needs for for tolerance does not mean we won't have incidents. But but I think that they will increasingly be on on the fringes. But you're right. It's 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 too soon uh, to declare victory. Uh, anything else we need to keep our eye on over the weekend? Either one of you.
1: I mean, do we think that Donald Trump's Supreme Court pick is going to hold until Monday night? There's apparently a primetime event. He's going to make the announcement. Uh, It's going to be a big deal. I I guess I wouldn't be surprised if we hear something or read something on Donald Trump's Twitter account before that point that uh, yeah. that either gives us a clue or or tells us who it is. But
0: remember he wanted to keep it a secret the last time with Korsuch, you he remember he actually had the misdirection he had one of the guys get in his car and start heading toward Washington so who knows he he likes the theat you know the theatrical aspect. I would guess that it will leak because it's, it's pretty apparent that he's going to have to really go through the process of advising consent with the Senate. I mean, clearly he's going to have to be talking to people in the Senate before he unveils it. So
2: wouldn't that be an argument that, that something will leak out? If I could just say one one thing about that, I, I think I agree with you that 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 would perhaps lead uh, that direction. Uh, but I, I think it's we, we, we really ought to just point out that that he, he is really in a position of strength when it comes to this uh, nominee. He has his majority. You know, like like we say, Susan Collins has has uh, who would be one of the potential dissenters uh, has really sort of been vacillating about, on how she'll vote. She voted for Gorsuch. Three Democrats voted for Gorsuch, uh, and this really couldn't have come at a better time for Trump either. You know, it, r- r- just as we're coming up on the midterm election. There's going to be a lot of pressure, not just on Republicans to hold the line, but on, on some Democrats to come on as well. And, you know, even even if one nominee were to get slapped down and, and things were to get pushed till after the elections, it seems like that would only help Republicans nationally in, in November. Uh, so I, I, I think that what we're seeing right now is really Trump in his element, in his wheelhouse. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see him hang on to it until Monday and, and, and uh, get one of those apprentice style announcements going. Well, you know, there's
1: a there's a great. Yeah. Piece today on Politico about the political
2: uh, impact of these
1: fights in Senate races across the country, focusing on Missouri. And it, I mean it when I'm I dean it seriously when I say it's a it's a good piece. I think Andrew's piece that he did a little more than a week ago on the same topic was even better. So I highly recommend <laughs> that our listeners go and seek out Andrew Eggers piece on the potential impact of a Supreme Court vacancy uh, uh, on the Missouri Senate race.
0: Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me and hope you have a great uh, weekend. And thank you for listening to the Daily Standard podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back on Monday and we'll do this all over again.